Uh, Mick Worthington, welcome to Time Team Tea Time. I have a memory, Mick, of us being somewhere in Shropshire, and I've got a feeling that you and the rest of the diggers were sleeping on Mark Horton's floor. Yeah, that would be much. Yeah, that would be much Wenlock. We basically, I don't think the the TV company really realised that they needed archaeologists, so they basically got Mark to bring some of his students. And with Renlock, we basically just camped in his house, and Mark's wife ran away. <laughs> she just ran out the door because she couldn't stand all these people in her house. And we basically camped in Mark's Mark's house the whole three days and had basically a lot of a crazy party about going whilst you guys were doing whatever you were doing. We had no idea what you were doing. There's lots of equipment everywhere, I remember. And we were just like, I have no idea what this stuff is. So yeah, we had a great time. <laughs> I remember sort of coming in one morning and there were just bodies over the floor. It looked like something from the Blitz. That's um, and and I remember that shoot very well with for the joys of various moments in which Mick um, decided we'd actually been digging in the wrong place for a day or two, looked over the fence and said, we should be digging next door. That's and, right. We had, we had to shuffle to the next door neighbor's house, and I think the original guy wasn't desperately happy about it. But um, I rather it was a very memorable shoot that partly because Mark was involved, uh, the estimable Professor Horton as he was then, um, yeah. who spent a fair time. I'm interested, Mick, about diggers. Um, do you think being a digger on you did 50 time team programs uh, right. or more? What was it that that made Time Team different, apart from the sheer panic of it? Was there a specific skill that you had to have that helped you get through the whole craziness of a three-day shoot? Well, in some ways, the the, the digging within Time Team wasn't that different to what I was doing commercially. I was working in a commercial lab, a commercial, not lab in those days, I work in a lab now. I I worked for a commercial unit back in those days. And we'd basically arrive on site and we'd only have three days. Some bulldozers had arrived on a site to knock something down and we were basically scurrying around in front of it trying to record what we can. So for me, Time Team wasn't such a big shock. There were camera crews and there was great catering, but... Day to day was very similar to what I was already doing. A lot of archaeologists who were doing sort of researchy stuff got upset, but for me it was it was what I was doing. So I find it was it, for me it was just okay. This is just another job, and it was for for me very much like that. I quite like the fact of we we would go all sorts of places. So one of the places we went to was Ribchester, and we yeah. often have a mixture of people there local archaeologists with the local county archaeologists and their diggers and our diggers and I always found it really useful to have people that we knew sort of working alongside everybody because sometimes what was going on in the trenches wasn't always blind and obvious to me or the director or whatever and we could come to you you guys and ask you what you know is this real are we are we going fast enough? What do you think? Yeah, I think that was I think that's one of the main reasons that you had to have your own archaeologist because I think the local people they, the camera crews arrived. It was a big shock. They didn't know what was going on. It would take them a day, a day and a half to get used to it. And some people it was natural for them, but but most people couldn't understand what was going on. It was shocking. It was stressful. So by having us, we could hold people's hands 
and say, okay, it's okay, fine, it's only camera crew, there is catering, it's okay. <laughs> and just calm people down a bit. And also keep your eyes open. A lot of my job actually wasn't really digging, it was actually making sure what we were finding um, got onto camera. And I'd be looking around site and seeing something being dug and say, hey guys, let's just slow down a bit here. Let's just leave that alone. I know, I know you want to dig it, but just leave it alone for five minutes. I would get, you know, on my comms, I had, I had a walkie-talkie like Mick and everybody else did, and I would ring into the director and say, hey, guys, we're finding such and such, you, can, you should get a crew out here. So I would do a lot of sort of stopping, digging, and also making people go fast. Come on, guys, this is not good enough. We've got to get this done by lunchtime. I know the camera crew is coming out after lunch. We have to. No, and they would just moan. No, we got Yes, you have to do it. Come on, guys. So people hated me. Do you remember... Uh, the, you know, do you remember a moment when you actually found something on camera? What was the first artifact, object, site, bit of mosaic where you actually thought, well, now I've done it. I've actually found something. And all this paraphernalia of cameras and things has actually recorded it. I was much more in my role because I was sort of excavation supervisor and I'm more the liaison between you guys and the archaeologists. My job was to make sure that we as a TV company got what we wanted. So as an archaeologist, I was much, I wasn't that, quite often I didn't dig at all on a shoot. You know, I'd be making people dig, I'd be running around all the trenches making sure that we were finding stuff. So I can't think of anything, I'm sure tomorrow it'll come to me, I'll wake up in the morning, ah, oh, Tim, I should have said such and such, but I can't think of anything. I think it's, I think it's rather marvellous you managed to blag your way into a sort of middle management role so early in, in the um, and you um you went to nevis didn't you yes and digging in nevis was was a, another bag of tricks altogether i mean it was just in, obviously incredibly hot there were spiders coming out of the trenches That's right. spiders <laughs> working their way <laughs> spiders came in uncle phil went out the other way that's right. <laughs> what do you remember about Nevis, Nick? I love Nevis. I thought it was one of my one of my favourite digs. You know, it was a great dig. The, the, the archaeology was unbelievable. I never realised it was you know steam. I spent at that point ten years um, studying steam engines in Colbertdale, and all of a sudden I ended up at, and basically just there's stone bases or brick bases, and we out in the Caribbean. And the damn thing's just sitting there. There's, there's a steam engine that came out of Bolton and Watts factory in, in Birmingham, just <laughs> sitting there. It was like, what? Why did they come here earlier? I actually, after I left Time Team, I went to the Caribbean and worked for a couple of years, did did excavate, did field schools and things out there. So right. that was really a change. And I really, really enjoyed that day. It was great stuff. And what was nice about what was strange about that? I think the first day, as we were ex, we were doing an estate, uh, a, a sugar estate there, and we began to find materials from Bristol, like Bristol blue glass. Yeah. And do you remember the Staffordshire guy we had, David, who was an expert on transfer ware, and he yes. was saying, "Oh yeah, that was a dinner service sent out to these characters." So they yeah. had the best dinner service, Bristol glass, wine, and all the rest of it. And yeah. we had we we had we did two programs there. What other which parts of the dig did you get involved in? Where were you digging mainly? So on the on the first program when we were at um, Mount Travis, I think it was called. Yeah, was it Pinners Pinners Estate? I think. Estate, yeah. So I was basically 
I think I was in the counting house and I was basically around the house. Stuart went off and did some crazy stuff. Um, I basically was working there. And then the next dig we did it on Coconut Grove, it was called, which was a um, Native American, Native American site, Amerindian site on the, on the, on the beach. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And basically that one we were digging, um, in, in the town. I think we actually found, I think that was a really good find. We actually found, um, some kind of occupation site, possibly buildings from, from that from the period, which was like n- never been done before, which was pretty amazing. And then of course the hurricane came in and washed the dig away. So just I lost. I literally went for lunch, came back, and my dig the hole was like two meters square had disappeared. It'd gone. The storm had come in and just just filled the hole up. So that was that was a good dig. <laughs> I I also remember we were working with some of the local people. I remember Charlie helping us out. Uh, yes. And he used to take us off, take Stuart off and say, I think you should be looking. And I remember we found the remnants of a village that was quite near to that main house where actually the slaves had lived. Yes. And and one of the lovely things, we're going to be showing this this Sunday, Um mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the first one or the second one, but they found some tiny remains of blue and white pottery cut into gaming pieces to act yeah. as, uh, you know, gaming pieces for the guys who were the slaves living in the village, essentially. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that was good. I think Stuart's work on that was pretty amazing. That jungle, you can't really see it on camera. I've worked, I've subsequently worked in the Caribbean quite a lot. That jungle is really, really hard to work in. It's really thick. It's dense. It, and it's trying to kill you all the time with spiky stuff, snakes and stuff. But the stuff Stuart did was pretty, pretty phenomenal because we you know we, we had our site cleared before we got there, so we could just do our normal archaeology. Although it was very hot, so I think Stuart's work on that was was pretty good. Not than Stuart. <laughs> Absolutely, and and I also remember Jenny, um, you know, coming appearing one morning, and she'd been bitten by every mosquito around. I mean, she was covered in bites. Um, and she still soldiered on. It was quite a, quite a. Well, the thing, yeah. the thing about the caffeine is, whenever you go, you have to take somebody with you who the mosquitoes like, yes. so that you else get bit. And unfortunately, that ticket was Jenny. So <laughs> we should make the point that for us, you know, Mick the dig became Mick the twig. Right, yeah. We called you, and you became a dendrochronologist. Um, and I think I found that I, I find we've done quite a bit of dendrochronology. When people talk about it, what, you know, people who aren't archaeologists or whatever, it's often referred to as absolute dating, uh, if I'm right, in the yeah. sense that why is it that, that dendro can be so like one of the most accurate dating things we have? It is. It is the most accurate dating thing we have, um, basically because. We can tell when the tree was felled, where all the other ones are date ranges, no 20 years, 30 years, 40,000 years. So all the other dating techniques have this range where when we're working and we have the right samples and we have the right trees um, and the right timbers, sorry, we can come down to exactly when that tree was was cut within a few months. The the tree's cut and then sometimes it's matured for a while. No. 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 Okay. No, well, if you go, if you go, I watched the Langorse program this morning, and if you look at the Langorse program, um, 
because I'd forgotten about you were talking about you and I were talking about Time Team yesterday. I was thinking, I can't remember anything about Time Team. It's so long ago. I've had to go back and watch the programs this morning. Just like, oh yeah, that's what we did. I remember it now. Anyway, on that Langors program, we actually made a, a log canoe that, that Phil and Tony went out of water on. Yeah. Great fun. And if you listen to that program, they're talking about the fact that as soon as that wood dries out, you get harder to work. And it's the same with buildings. If you dry that building out like you would for furniture or something, it becomes a much harder job to make the beams and all the rest of it. And you don't want to do that. So you cut, as soon as you cut that tree down, you're cutting it up and you're squaring it up. You're starting to put mortises in it. And within a few, you know, within six months of that tree, those trees coming down, that building is up and occupied, unless it's a big manor house or something. But for a vernacular building, it's six months, nine months. So that's what we sort of work on when we're, when we give a day. So if your building's a normal sort of house size building, six months, your building's up. And we've done, we Sorry, we did rec- we did research in Winchester Cathedral Rolls, where they've got all the records of of the management of all the properties owned by the cathedral. And in that, you can see them paying for carpenters, and you can see them paying for foresters to get the wood and the carpenters to fix it. And you can see the first rent coming in. So the house is up and being rented. You can see that six months to nine months a year. You can see the change on the size of the house. It that building being up. So we we know that basically. We know it's green. And, and you're working for the University of Maryland now, off and on. You're an independent dendrochronologist, but um... yeah, I'm, in, I'm independent dendrochronologist. I've been been um, running my own business for a long time. It gives me freedom to do whatever I want. But when I was in England, I was at Oxford University, and that, that university affiliation is really useful. So when I came to America ten years ago, I basically went to University of Maryland and talked to them about me being. A research faculty which gives me university access to the libraries and computers and all that kind of stuff so for me it's a really good resource and for them it means like when i finish this zoom call i'm doing another zoom call with the university that the students are all at home so you know i work I, with them but not full-time sort of thing and one of the really exciting things you've been looking at is mount vernon do you want to tell the english viewers why mount vernon is such a big deal in america and what have you found out about it yeah, so basically I do, when I was in England, obviously I was doing things like, you know, Tower of London and things like that. So when I came over here, lots of people say to me, you know, this, why are you there? The buildings aren't that old. But, you know, we're all telling stories. Our job's all about making stories and, and improving stories. So when we went to Mount Vernon, which is a really important house here, it's the first president of the new country. It's like, it's like American, the closest they have to royalty, but then tell the Americans that. Yeah. So it's a really important house. And when we went there, the story was that basically this was George Washington, the house that he built. And when we came into Dendro, we actually found in the in the basement of this house, you could see the fact that the bottom plates, the bottom timbers for the original house his father had built. Wow. So we managed to push the structure back sort of 40 years, I think 1732, I think, but don't, don't quote me on the date. We could basically see his father's house encapsulated in the house that you see today, um, the famous house you see today. So for dendrochronology, that was a great, you know, a great sort of advancement of the story of Mount Vernon. And I still, I, that was at this point 15 years ago I did that. And I still go back. Basically, I'm on call there. So whenever they find any wood, they ring me up and say, Mick, we found some wood in some circumstance. I'm picking a wall down or a fire escape or whatever. Somebody's found something. I'll go back and do it for them. So I've been working there literally for 15 years. <laughs> and, and extraordinary enough, I think you were saying you're about, you're, a, you know, one of the few dendrochronologists, independent dendrochronologists in the States. 
Yeah, I'm basically the only one. I'm the only full-time dendrochronologist. All the dendrochronologists either work for universities, so they're lecturing full-time, or they're doing other research, and they do tree they do building dating um, as a sideline sort of thing or a very small part of their job. But I only do I only do structures. Okay. So I work with historians across the country, basically. And I'm going to just, you know, sort of ask you to just very briefly, because I remember talking to you about um, different kinds of woods being made and how knowing the tree ring dating from other buildings that have been dated already allows you to sort of bring the two lots of barcodes of tree rings together and match them up. That's the best I can do. Yeah, that's good. Why is that? Why, what is the deal with all that? Because so, I know you're quite jealous about your data in some ways. You're, you know, good data. Yeah, my, yeah, my job is data. So what we, what we're doing is, if you take a sample of wood out of a building, well, if you get two pieces of wood which are growing at the same time, they will record the climate signal um, for that period they're growing. And the way they record it is the width of their rings. So on a warm, wet year, you'll get a wide ring. On a drought year, you'll get a narrow ring. Over a long period of time, 50 years plus, that becomes a unique code. So any two trees growing at the same time won't have the same ring widths, but they'll have the same sequence of narrow and wide rings. And that's what we're looking for. So basically, if you know the date of one piece of wood and you can match another one against it, you can transfer the date from the one piece of wood to the other. And if you've got bark edge, you can say that tree was felled in the summer of 1722 or whatever it might be. And we, we we had some dates from a village in Somerset, Dunster, of about 1270. Um, yeah. What was interesting about it was that some of the wood had bits of a ring system and another bit had a little bit more of it or a little bit less of it. And you, you don't need the complete set from each building to match up your dates. Is that right? You can You can use sections of one with sections of the other if they match you don't need like the entire bandwidth of the tree no 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 we, that's true sorry yeah so basically what we're trying to do we, we take six to ten samples out of the phase of construction of the building so the oldest part of the house we'll take six to ten samples and what we're looking for is as many samples are complete that would all those samples have to have more than 50 annual rings and if we can't get all the samples complete that would we'll take other ones which will sort of extend the chronology further back. So the longer the chronology we get, the better. And the sap, that's, sap wood is the sap wood is the is the outside of the tree is the outside rings of the tree which are just under the bark and those basically are still in oak particularly. They they are still pumping water up and down the tree. And when we get into that section there, we can start doing things like, you know, when date ranges and if we got the bark edge we can give a precise date. <laughs> Can you give us an example? I often think, you know, you with your little coring machine and drill disappearing up into ancient buildings in America, do you ever get quite nervous about what you've got to do? And was there a really great result you were able to tell someone that you can talk about that you remember? Something? Yeah, like yeah it's, it's, it's a funny one because I was doing a job in Edenton, North Carolina, and I, I was, there was a guy who basically rented houses. He'd buy up small houses, he'd do them up, and he would rent them out. And his builder was, was in this house one day. It's a tiny building. It's, it's like 20, 20 feet by 15 at the most. It's not a small one-story sort of building. And the builder started taking the plaster off and realized this timber work looks weird. It's not 
two by fours. It's not modern, you know, 1930s wood like, like all the others in the town. It's something different. So they call in the, the local, the, the county archaeologists, the equivalent state archaeologists here. And they basically said, this is something unusual. They called me in. I did dental chronology. And we basically found the oldest surviving building in North Carolina from 1719, I think it was. Yeah. And it, it's this tiny building in the back of us. It's not even on the high street. It's like in a back street somewhere. It's probably been moved because these guys move buildings all the time. And it was like, you know, it made national press here. Uh-huh. So <laughs> that was cool. That's a great, that's a great, 1790 is a great date, isn't it? When you think, when, do, when we're, we're Mayflower year now, uh, yes. you know, the, the celebration of it. That those early settlements in places like Carolina, what sort of dates are the first settlers coming in? Well, it's not that easy because you have the main settlements, which are sort of, I don't know, Virginia, Virginia, coastal Virginia, Maryland, where St. Mary's, where you, where you went to, and then sort of the Boston area of New England. And basically from those places in New York, you get these people radiating out. So the dating basically slowly expands out from those places so everywhere you go the earliest buildings are always later than those coastal towns where people are coming from okay and then you've also got to remember over here i'm not just looking at english buildings like in new england sort of english buildings i'm looking at german buildings swedish buildings um and loads of other cultures coming in so um it's always it's it, yeah it's always yeah it's always good it's good <laughs> and have they asked you to do any boats have any boat timbers come up for you to take a look yeah i've just done, I've just done three boats no four boats in alexandria they were they were um putting a new a new housing complex in with understory car park and in the 1750s they'd extended the town rather than the town faced the river and rather than extending the town away from the river they extended the town into the river so they made these huge log cribs which look like 50 foot size log cabins which they filled with rubble and then built on it and in there we found three ships um, and one of them dated so we're in virginia which is near washington dc which is sort of central west coast east coast sorry and the the timbers, that ship, the, the, the ship's called the Indigo, because that's the name of the hotel they were building. The, the ship timbers came from New England. And I know there's two towns where the wood's coming from, and there's two shipyards there. So it came from one of these two shipyards in, this, in the 1740s or something. So ships are really interesting, because you can do this Denver provincing, so you can see where they, obviously where they sink isn't where they were built, but sometimes you get to see where they were built. So I do ships, I do probably one a year, I guess. I think I I like the idea of somehow you being the dendro detective. <laughs> I you get a phone call, Mick, we've got some timbers in wherever, and off you go and do it. I mean that must be quite because the thing I remember about dendro, relatively speaking, compared with C14, it's it's relatively quick if you've got the right number of rings. How how long does it take to go from rings? to date if i don't have any other work on so i did a job the other day where i sampled it on the monday and i the report was out by the wednesday but usually it takes a month because obviously i've got 10 other jobs going at any one time and people shouting at me for this that and the other i, so I, I, like, I can i can only give you scientists three days to do anything that's right yeah well, i'm used to that i've got a lot of that three days i can do anything in three days because <laughs> <laughs> you're in america now 
Um, yes. Do you have any sense of, of having missed stuff in England or is, is it so exciting in America and your new life there and everything? Do you ever feel you'd like to go back and dig a nice Roman site or a, or yeah, a stone or? Yeah, I, I still have the problem with the archaeologists here like you did when you did the, the shoot of St. Mary's. I know I walk onto sites and I, I pull my hair out. I mean, what are you guys doing? I could have done this myself this afternoon. Literally, I was thinking the other day, and I was thinking, about eight people working. And I'm thinking, no, I'm now 56. You know, when we're doing the show, I was like in my, my mid-20s. I still could do it quicker than these eight young kids doing this thing. I could literally just go in there and just do, the, do it for them on my own in the afternoon. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, we had some very nice experiences, I should say, in Maryland with the American archaeologists there. But I do remember a sense of, time passing before my eyes as they took out the long handled hoe and sort of <laughs> and it made this sort of long drawn out sort of grating noise and they yeah. did one of those have a look do another, I mean they gradually got you know speeded up a bit but uh, I clearly yeah, I feel, I feel very different here because there isn't much history and the way the way digs work you know the people you were working with how many years ago it was 20, 20 years ago that you did that shoot are still working on that site today. Yes. You know, England, you'd never get that. Where here, people go to one site and that'll be their whole career. Yeah. So there's a different scale of speed. Also, the information they want is very different. You know, in England, there's so much Victorian. If you tried to record everything Victorian England, you would never, you'd never get to the, you'd never get to the interesting stuff. So it's a very different, different world. What would your fantasy dendro or archaeology site be if you if you had a chance to stick your core in one piece of archaeology or somewhere? Does anywhere come to mind? Oh, I'd love to have done that, or I would want to do that, or does anything? No, I no, I've actually I, I haven't got. I've done some great things. I mean, the stuff we done time team was pretty amazing. I've worked in Egypt. I've worked in the Caribbean. So, no, I haven't got anywhere I want to go. There's a lot of places I want to go. I've been and I've been amazed. Actually, the best archaeology we've done is in somebody's back garden because you get these people who are so excited. You know, the Ribchester program, that guy is so excited about why he's got his garden. And I actually prefer those kind of digs where the locals are involved. And the other one we did was the, the Soho Manufactory we did in yeah. Birmingham. Birmingham, England, yeah. England, there was like... 200 people came out to see what we were doing. They were so excited. And like the dig I was on last week in, in Maryland, it was in a, a poor African-American neighborhood, which is they're trying to sort of stop it. They're trying to sort of save the area. And basically we had about 50 local people coming and they were really interested in what was happening, why we were doing it. And I find that much more exciting than I want to go and dig pyramid, although I've done a pyramid. Um, going back to Nevis, um, uh, of which I have memories of um, the Time Team theme being played on tin drums and a rather <laughs> riotous end-of-shoot party on a beach, which we won't, right. we won't go into, but I think the photographs exist somewhere. Um, I also remember scuba diving with Mick. I mean, you were around for a lot of Mick's time with, with Time Team. You and Mick met at Bristol. You've known him for a long time. What, what are your memories yeah. of Mick? Oh, I think Mick was unique, totally and utterly unique. The memory he had, the stuff he had seen, 
every subject you talked about, he could add to. He'd either seen it, he'd read something about it. He just had that brain that just sucked that kind of information in. And I was talking to my wife. My wife was taught by him at, at Bristol University. And she was saying that was one of the things that made him such a great teacher was because he just had that knowledge. You could just talk to anything to him. Then he had something to say about it. Fantastic. I miss him so much. Yeah. Well, I think that's a rather nice place to end, Mick. Um, thank you very much for a little insight. Uh, we will be coming to you to know more about your career in dendrochronology in the future. And, right, and okay. if you find something that you can share with us, it would be great to hear about it. And right. I hope you stay well. Best wishes to all our American friends out there, particularly in Maryland. I always remember one thing in Maryland. Stop, stop, stop. It's not called Maryland. It's Maryland. Oh, sorry. Crikey, right. Maryland. Um, <laughs> Uh, and the thing I remember from that was the tooth facet. We did a okay. burial there. And yes. there, there was a gut, we found a skull, and in the guy's skull with his teeth and everything, there was the little shape where he kept his hickory pipe yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah. And, and I remember discussing the idea that in, when the, when the first people arrived there, that first winter they called the seasoning period or something. And yeah. literally 40% of them died. I, when I first came here, the first two years, I struggled. I couldn't go outside. I had to stay in air-conditioned rooms. Yeah. I could not go outside in the summer. The summer here was brutal. I live, I live 30, 30 miles away from where you were digging in St. Mary's City, 30, 40 miles okay. away. So I, I, I live that climate. It's brutal. I know it, it, I had one day I was out at, a, at an art show. I fainted and the paramedics had to take me into an air conditioned room and feed me water because it was so hot. So oh. I'm not surprised they died. I really am not. That's been awful. I can't imagine doing it. I can't imagine doing it. That's awful. And thinking about that Mayflower generation, I remember a sort of slight shiver at the thought of those people leaving England, leaving European cities, making a journey which they knew they couldn't come back from to the new world and then having the guts and resources to make it through um, in some cases with help from the Native Americans and and it, it's a really it is an incredible story about America those early settlement days which St. Mary's City um, uh, was part of um, final thought if people are thinking about watching Nevis this weekend we join together and watch this why would you recommend watching Nevis to them? What what What's good about the show? I think Nevis is a good story because it tells you a little bit about how England got so rich. You know, the empire and all the rest of it. You know, the UK made a huge amount of money off the back of slave slavery. And I don't think we're told enough about that. And I think that program gives you a glimpse of that. And I think that's a good educational thing to do. Yeah, and when we're going through, I think it's Black History Month at the moment here, and the yeah. Black Lives Matter movement is, is is well represented over here. So that's a, that's a really important point for me. Mick, thank you very much indeed. Lovely to see you again. Kind of miss the long hair. I know. I couldn't believe how long my hair was. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I just thought you looked like John the Baptist or something. <laughs> I, I did look just like John the Baptist. <laughs>
I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> Nick, lovely to talk as always, and uh, we'll talk again soon. And stay well, and best wishes to you and the family. Excellent. Love you, mate. See you again. See you.